0: We're going to start out today by actually engaging in a little prayer for the persecuted church, um, and, and fitting that we're actually discussing this today, begin, being that we're launching into a new series on the church. Let's uh, open up with just some thoughts and attitudes, taking these ideas before God. I'm asking you individually to be praying the things that that uh, on the topics that we're about to mention. So, if you would just collectively, as a family, where you're sitting, or even alone. Go ahead and speak to the Lord as I bring out each one of these ideas. Let's first begin by praying that God would advance His kingdom through the suffering of the saints as He has done throughout history. So just turn your mind to the Lord right now and let's pray. Father, we're we're not praying that Christians would be persecuted, but rather that where persecution has struck, where persecution is being inflicted on your church, Lord, that your church would flourish in the midst of those moments. That it would be the case that, that none of that suffering was wasted, but that it would advance your kingdom. Lord, we're praying that together and we agree together in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's spend a few moments and let's Pray for the encouragement and the comfort of our brothers and sisters in the midst of prison, in the midst of persecution, enslavement, um, suffering either emotionally or because of stigma, or suffering because um, they're actually being targeted with physical violence. We're just going to pray right now for their relief, for their encouragement, and for their comfort. Take it before the Lord. Lord God, where your saints are at their breaking point, where our brothers and sisters are, are suffering to the point where they don't know what they can do. Father, we're praying a peace that surpasses all understanding upon them. And Lord, that if it is possible, that you would give them a season of refreshment even in the midst of their suffering and persecution. God, we trust you with their lives, and I know that they trust you with their lives. In the midst of all of these things, God, I pray, encourage them, embolden them, Lastly, let us pray together right now for boldness. Um, In the book of Acts, as the church began to experience persecution and the disciples came back and they gathered together, they didn't pray for more comfort. They didn't pray that that things would just go away and the difficulties would not be there. They didn't pray to be embraced by their persecutors. What they prayed for was boldness. And that's what we want to pray for the church right now. Boldness for them and boldness for us that we would take um, their example and that we would speak more boldly for the cause of Jesus Christ and be more courageous because of what our brothers and sisters are experiencing. Let's pray for that, that we would all be emboldened by the faith of our brothers and sisters in the midst of their trials. Father, help us to not be soft. Lord, help us to show the courage of other believers around the world, the courage that they're showing. Lord, you declared that all who live, desire to live a godly life would be persecuted. And Father, right now, we just want to ask that even in the midst of whatever suffering or stigmas that our culture places on us, Father, that we would be bold, that we would speak boldly in your name, not concerned about what this earth is doing, Uh, or can do to us, Father, but operating in fear of you, and because of respect for you, that we would be bold with our faith. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world right now, Father, that your church would be encouraged and blessed and refreshed, and that your kingdom would advance. Lord, we love you, and we praise you for being part of such an esteemed, amazing body of people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're beginning a new series today called Divine Community. We're going to be talking about the church, and it's very fitting that we actually are dealing with the issue of the persecuted church today, as we are mingling right now with brothers and sisters throughout the world in all different environments and circumstances who are living as a church, as one church, serving and seeking out God today we're going to be addressing the issue of the community we're going to be looking at the nature of the church this is really kind of an introduction to where we're going to be going we're asking the question what is the church now that's a big question that is a big question with a vast answer and really we're going to be asking that question over and over again in different ways throughout the next month and a half as we dig into this issue We're going to be looking at what the church is, and and we're going to be kind of hitting it from different angles, thinking about different aspects of the church. It occurred to me, as I was putting together this message this week, that individually and collectively, we may actually be asking and answering this question for the rest of eternity. There's nothing in the Scriptures that says that the church, the community and gathering of believers, ends when Christ returns. In fact, the best indication is that church continues to go on, that we will continue to meet with one another forever. And so continually discovering and delving into the depths of what the church is may be a part of who we are eternally. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 is going to be our memory verse for the next month and a half. It's an important passage. The author of Hebrews says this to the church. He says, again, this is Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. Jot it down right now and put it on your refrigerator or put it somewhere where you can begin memorizing it as a family. Here's what the the, uh, passage says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We want, we desire to get together, and hopefully in two weeks we'll be doing that again here in this facility. But in the meantime, praise God that we can at least gather digitally with one another. So Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, begin memorizing it my boys really like the marvel movies if you've been paying attention to anything that has been going on cinematically for the last several decades you'll know that marvel has been a little bit busy cranking out feature films that being said it's not terribly uncommon to walk through my house and as you're passing through find that a movie is playing in the living room these movies are action-packed they're full of people saving the planet or even saving the cosmos I want you to imagine, though, for a moment before we get going, that those movies aren't fantasy. Imagine that they're real. Imagine they're describing reality. And you're part of the storyline. You're one of the heroes. You're one of the people who, day in and day out, are saving the world based on your courage, based on your heroism, based on your engagement. Imagine that is the case. You are in the midst of saving the earth or even the cosmos. If that were your real life, I want you to imagine... Not talking about it. Imagine not thinking about it. Imagine never letting it enter into your conversation or your thought life. Can you imagine a situation where this would not enter into your daily plans? Can you imagine having such an audacious, amazing mission being so productive in such a powerful way and not thinking about it or not dealing with it? If we knew how much more powerful how much more valuable, how much eternally hangs in the balance because we are part of an enterprise that God has called the church, you'd find that Avengers comparison weak at best. Many of you might be thinking, Ben, that's, that's hyperbole. Clearly, working with preschoolers or taking out a bag of trash after services is not equitable to saving New York City from a nuclear warhead. And you're right, One of these things has a ripple effect that enters into eternity, that alters eternities. One of these things fulfills the mandate of Almighty God. One of these things places you in the most prestigious organization in the whole course of human history, indeed in the whole course of the existence of the cosmos, and it's not being an avenger. If we can begin to understand the church through God's eternal eyes, if we can see how He views our role in it, If we can see and understand what the church is, you will understand, we will understand that we are part of the most profound project in all of universal history. Let's spend some time over the next few months thinking about the church. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Our master, we want to pray your blessing on this discussion today. Help us to think about the church. Again, Lord, as I've just said, help us to see ourselves and our role in your church through your eyes, that we can understand what significant roles we play in the whole course of eternity. Master, as we begin to unpack the church today, I pray your blessing on this study. Again, Father, help us to commit to memory and our understanding, our deep understanding, what it is to be part of your church. We love you, God. Give us insight. Give us perspective. And may eternity be changed because of what we hear today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to be discussing three things. We're going to be looking at misconceptions of the church, firstly. Misconceptions, we'll be talking about things the church isn't. And secondarily, we want to talk about some basic biblical definitions of what the church is. So we'll dig in on the issue of understanding the church. Lastly, I want to talk about how the church is ultimately God's project, and we'll try to see the church as God has portrayed it to us in Scripture. Let's begin by discussing what the church isn't. Profound misunderstandings do more damage than a lack of understanding. Let me say that again. Profound misunderstandings do more damage than a lack of understanding. Lord Halifax, a former foreign secretary of Great Britain, once shared a railway compartment with two prim and somewhat disapproving-looking spinsters. A few moments before reaching his destination, the train passed through a tunnel, and as was par for the course in trains in that era, when they went into a tunnel, the entire compartment became utterly and completely black. In that absolute darkness, Halifax, sitting across from these two women, began to noisily kiss the back of his hand. He did so several times in a sloppy and somewhat suggestive manner. When the train drew into the station, he rose and he lifted, doffed his hat in a gentlemanly way, and he said to the two women sitting there, May I thank whichever one of you two ladies I am indebted to for that charming incident in the tunnel. He then beat a hasty retreat, leaving the two ladies glaring at one another. A profound misunderstanding can do more damage than an outright attack. The church is the most powerful institution in human history. You might not see it that way, but God has suggested that that is the case, though it's not strictly a human institution. So our intelligent adversary has done a lot of work to plant the wrong ideas about what the church is in the minds of believers collectively, in the minds of the world, and in our minds individually so as to nullify the power of the church, let's talk about what the church isn't. The church isn't, first of all, a physical building. The church isn't a physical building. Now, our language betrays us on this issue because we almost always talk about this the wrong way. So we'll say things like, it's time to go to church. That's theologically incorrect. The church is not a location. We'll say things like, behave yourself at church. And that doesn't make any sense because the church is not a physical place. In the New Testament, no physical structure is ever referenced as the church, not once. Though we do get reference to a spiritual structure. While the church is not a physical building, there is a strong indication in scriptures that we are to think of the church as a building. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at verse 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2. Now we'll cycle back to this particular issue later on, but here's the only sense in which the church is a building. It is a building in the sense that we are the building, the structure being made by God. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the only sense in which the church is a building is the sense in which God is making us into a sort of spiritual structure to house his work and his features in life. We don't go to the church. We are the church. So the church is not a physical building. Secondarily, I want to mention that the church is not a social club. This has become a dangerous way to think about what the church is and what the church does. It's a country club. It's a place full of amenities. It's a place where you get together to socialize with people. Now, I love the family of God that meets in the church. It's a wonderful thing. But it is not the whole purpose for which God designed and developed this entity known as the church. Think of this as kind of the misconstruing the church in Burger King terms. Burger King terms, for those of you who've been around for a while, you remember Burger King's old advertisement campaigns said this, have it your way have it your way and the idea was you can develop your own hamburger you can make it yourself it can have all the components that you want on it many of us take this attitude when it comes to the church so I want you to imagine a very nice country club think about a nice country club it's got a gymnasium it's got a weight room it's got a coffee and juice bar that's fantastic it's got tennis courts game rooms pool tables maybe even a pool here's a question Would any of these things make your church experience better? Would these amenities make your church experience better? Now, most of us immediately would react with a no. No, of course not. Because we know that that did not have a role in the first century church. They didn't have pool tables, and yet they still conducted church. But there's some part of you probably that hears a list like that and thinks, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. It'd be kind of nice to have those things as part of the church. Amenities like those we just mentioned are often a huge selling point for many congregations around the world right now. There are many churches, particularly in the West, that make a solid point of actually having stuff that people want. And so they function in that way, and they use this as a draw for people in the community. But if a person is joining a church because it's got a great gymnasium, if a person is joining a church because they've got a great coffee bar, and I'm not diminishing coffee. If that is the case, is it really the church they are seeking to join? Or are they looking for a country club, a nice place to hang out? It's not to say that such things are inherently evil. I'm not saying having a gymnasium means that your church is doing something wrong, nor that these features cannot accomplish something for the kingdom of God. They very well might. But with the wrong idea about what the church is, amenities like these would be a positive detriment to the function and the work of the church. Unless the church knows who she is, such baubles would be, a positive, would be positively counterproductive and ultimately a distraction. We all recognize the wrongness of this i'm sure i mean if we were to introduce the question how much stuff would be necessary how expensive would the stuff have to be in order to be an adequate substitute for your spiritual experience at church most of us would go okay i recognize clearly there's no amount of stuff no amount of features that can substitute for what god ultimately wants for me at the root of some people's misconception of what the church is is the idea that the church exists to entertain me stop yourself and just think about that for a moment how often have you come into a church facility and to look for a certain amount of entertainment how often have you been in a church facility and thought to yourself this isn't doing much for me in such a condition who is being worshipped clearly not the god of the universe so maybe you recognize, of course, that material goods are clearly not God's design and goal for the church. I mean, those things are too carnal. You already know that the church isn't about stuff, but maybe, maybe it's not the social club in terms of the club portion. Maybe it's the social club in terms of the social portion. And so you think about church as a place where, well, where nice people do nice things. Where safe people gather in a safe place to have good, clean family fun. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus intend the church to be a place of safety and comfort? Is our personal comfort the first and greatest priority of Almighty God? Did Jesus forge his church so that nice people would gather to do nice things? Well, what do you think? I like to think of the church more like pockets of resistance fighters. We are on a sabotage mission to destroy, to subvert, and to disrupt the works of the adversary here in this place. We are knocking down the gates of hell, and we are stealing back our brothers and sisters for Jesus Christ. That is more the mission of the church than to gather in safety and security and insulate ourselves against the world. Now We all recognize that the church provides some comfort and security. That is hopefully the case. Hopefully that is your experience a lot of times as you come into church. But while the church may be fun, while it might have some amenity or another, its purpose is not fulfilled by such things. It's not merely social gathering, not merely stuff. The function and mission of the church is bigger than how it caters to my personal wants, to your individual wants. It's not God's plan. The church is not God's plan for a resort community. Don't approach church that way. Church isn't a physical structure. Church isn't a social club. Church isn't a spectator event. Many churches right now function as a controlled show. It's an audio and visual spectacular geared toward giving people a worship experience. I wonder, though, if the Apostle Paul, were he to wander wander into most of our engagements, would recognize those events as church, or whether he would wonder what exactly what was going on. Now, not all large churches are bad. I'm not suggesting that. But any church that allows the members of its congregation to believe that God's plan for His family here on earth is showing up in a room and observing a production, any congregation that allows its members to think that is misguided. Church is not happening in such an environment. It's a cheap substitute. God desired for us to have an enormous menu, an elaborate meal. And when we just have people show up and observe a show and leave, it's like handing them cotton candy. Spiritually, they are experiencing a nutritional deficit. There's something in the church called the 80-20 pattern. Anybody who's worked in the church for any amount of time is usually familiar with this idea. The 80-20 pattern means this, that generally in most churches, About 80% of the work of the church is accomplished by 20% of the people. 80% of the work of the church is accomplished by 20% of the people. This is a stadium problem. Think about church like a sporting event. Um, In a sporting event, this is the way that uh, Kyle Eidelman describes this, a number of people are running around like crazy, desperately needing a break out on the field. They're working hard, They're performing. They're putting on the show. Meanwhile, a host of people who desperately need exercise sit in the stands and watch them run around like crazy, and all they do is sit and judge what is going on. The Church of Jesus Christ is not a spectator event. It was not God's plan that a group of people would just watch a few people engage in church. Church is a whole-body enterprise. It is a whole-body exercise. Every member of the congregation is meant to be part of the work of the church. So we've talked about what the church isn't. The church isn't a physical building. The church isn't a social club. The church isn't a spectator event. Let's talk about what the church is. The church is the gathering of God's people. The church is the gathering of God's people. We are the called out ones. In the Greek, the original term for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia comes from two Greek words ek, which means out of or from, and uh, uh, kaleo, which means to be called or to be called out. We are the called out ones, the ones who are called out. Called out from what, you might be asking? Well, we're called out from the world. We're not meant to be like everything else. Look around the room wherever you happen to be sitting right now. These things are passing away. The physical structures, the physical entities are not here forever. There are people in your room that might be eternal. There might be people sitting around you that will last forever. You yourself are called out from this world. You will endure into eternity and last forever. So you're called out from that which is perishing. You're also called out from that which is profane. By profane, I mean ordinary. This universe, this world is full of ordinary things, and you are, in a sense, called out. You're holy. You're set apart for the purposes of God. You, church, are called out. But we're not just being called away from something. The standard use of the term uh, um, Ecclesia was to be called out, but to be called together. And so that is what is happening with us as the church. We're being called together, to gather together. This calling is church. It is the calling together of those who are eternal beings, who are holy beings, who are set apart for God's purposes. And so the church takes two forms as it's being discussed in the New Testament scriptures. The first form is the local church. Now, if you asked anyone in the first century, if you were to talk to anyone in the first century and say, what is the church, or what church do you go to, their response would not be to name a denomination. Even though they had different theological ideas sometimes, they wouldn't name a denomination. They wouldn't say anything about a pastor or a leader of the church. They wouldn't designate um, facilities or any kind of a building what would they talk about then well they would simply reference a region what church are you from i'm from the church of thessalonica or from ephesus or i'm from the church at cyprus they would reference a region because they were part of the local church if you take nothing else from what i'm saying today i want you to retain this unless and until you are part of a local church you're not part of the church unless and until you are part of the local church, until you have plugged into a body of believers and are participating with a group of people in a region, you're not part of the church. So if you're one of the individuals who thinks video feeds will be a complete substitute for the church experience. Now, I know we have to do it right now. But if you, if you long-term think, all I'm going to do is watch a video and I have therefore experienced God's plan for me, you're missing out. It's not what God called you to. It's God's design and desire that every Christian be plugged into a congregation, a fellowship of believers. It's his plan for forging who you are for eternity. There is a sense in which we are meant to be a local church, but that local church is just a pocket of the church universal. The term Catholic, as it was used in its original term, means universal. And so there is an idea in which we, every one of the local congregations, is part of the Catholic Church, or the universal church. That is, every church, every member of Jesus Christ's kingdom from all time in history, from the very beginning of the church all the way up until the very end of the church, and the last human is born. All of that time, and every congregation meeting everywhere in the world, all of that taken together is the church universal. That is the church that has not yet gathered once in human history, but it will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 describes this amazing inaugural event, the gathering of the church universal. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 14 through 18. This is hard to even wrap your mind around how tremendous, how amazing this gathering is going to be. Think about the persecuted church we mentioned earlier and the video we watched together as we think about these believers in different places in the world and their struggles and their difficulties. Imagine every one of us from all of human history gathering together for the first time as Christ's bride, Christ's church. First Thessalonians four, fourteen through eighteen. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Are you comforted by those words? Can you imagine what this will be like? The absolute victory, the crossing of the finish line as the church gathers together in its complete form. The dead raised, those who are alive together in Christ gathered to Him in that moment. What an amazing thought. Let your your heart and mind go there occasionally. I had a a good friend in Christ back at the the front end of the internet age used to occasionally email me and the email would come in and it would just say this, this phrase, today could be the day. Today could be the day. This could be the day when we are united with Christ. Be encouraged, be comforted by those words and by that moment that it is on the horizon, it's coming for us. Why do God's people gather? We know that we are the called out ones, but but why? Why would He call us together? Well, in short, firstly, because God directed us to. God knows better than you and I do. Amen? God knows better than you and I do what we need and how we might be best developed into His likeness. And the church is His plan for that. This gathering of believers that would get together. You might think to yourself, I'm not a person who likes other people. I'm not a people person tough. God called you to be a people person. He called you to be around other human beings, even if they rub you the wrong way, maybe especially if they rub you the wrong way, because he's training you to be like his son. There are thousands, tens of thousands of reasons we might identify as to why God developed the church, but I'm just going to list a few reasons that were just, they just popped to mind immediately as soon as I thought about what church is this past week. Number one, The familiar and the novel. The familiar and the novel. I had a uh, professor in uh, college at Miami University. He was a non-Christian, but he did go to a universalist Unitarian church, which is to say he went to a non-church that tried to feel like a church. Uh, In the midst of going to that congregation, he, he said to us in our gathering, he said, nobody goes to church to experience something new. And I immediately objected. Of course we go to church to experience something new. There's a sense in which every time we get together, we experience something novel. Even if the teachings are familiar to us, there should be some aspect of gathering together and experiencing the teachings together that still alters who we are for eternity. There's a novelty to getting together. But God didn't just want novelty. It's not just that we gather together so we can know more things. God also desired that we experience the familiar. I hope there's something comforting every week as we get together and you go through some of the same routines, the routines that God established. We'll talk about those in greater detail as we go through this series. But there's something to be said for the normalcy, for the patterns that remind us, that direct us, that encourage us. We have both the familiar and the novel as we get together as the church. We've also come together for encouragement. There is a sense in which we are so different from that world That when we come together here, we find a familiarity, a familiness that transpires, that gives us courage and strength to go back out and to face down the world again and to to be God's people in that place. This is a place for rebuke and for reminders. There's a sense in which when we gather, I should be experiencing something that tells me my life is wrong or my life is going in the wrong way, that I need to refocus or redirect. And that's part of why we get together with other believers. We also gather together for worship. It's not just simply that we gather together to look at one another and experience one another, but collectively, as we all get together, we turn our eyes to Him we deal with him. We think of him. We give him honor and praise and glory and lift him up collectively. There's a rightness in the human condition when we give glory and honor to God. Worship is something we'll talk about specifically in the midst of this series as we go on. We also gather together, together for training. This is a place where I should be being refined, where there, I should be dealing with life in such a way that I am getting better, and better, and better, more and more like Jesus Christ. That is to be the case as we gather together the church. as the church. And we're also to gather together for service. We are here to serve one another, to build one another up. Just as Jesus said, uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We in his likeness take care of one another's needs. That's why what Pete was saying earlier about um, getting help when you need help is so important. Don't deprive one another of the blessings of people being able to serve and care for you. This is a very short list, and this is just impact of the church within the church. And again, a very short list. We haven't even stopped to consider what the church's impact on the rest of the world is. It's bigger than most of us would ever be able to assess, I think, on this side of eternity. Dinesh D'Souza was speaking about the impact of the church on the world, and here's what he said. He said, Christianity is responsible for the way our society is organized and the way we currently live. So extensive is the Christian contribution to our laws, to our economics, to our politics, to our art, to our calendar, to our holidays, to our moral and cultural priorities that historian J.M. Robers writes in The Triumph of the West, We could, none of us today, be what we are if a handful of Jews nearly 2,000 years ago had not believed that they had known the greatest of teachers, had seen him crucified, dead, buried, and then risen again. The church massively impacts the world. There is no way to even understand the world history apart from the experience and existence of the church. Lastly, as we close out, we've We know what the church isn't, at least a few things that the church isn't. We know some of what the Bible says the church is. I want to turn our attention now to what God describes the church as, as a a kind of a closing meditation for us before we leave. The church is God's project. The church is God's project. If you've ever felt personal pressure for what happens with the church, whether or not it grows, whether or not it, it flourishes and functions, if that has ever been a burden that you have borne in this life, take a deep breath and recognize that ultimately the church is God's production. It's something that He's doing. Now, we're a part of that production, but the entity that forged the cosmos, the one who brought all things into being and who will conclude all things, that is the entity that is responsible for the nature function, and growth of the church. The church, as we mentioned earlier, is described as God's buildings. I want you to remember the three Bs. We're going to discuss these three ways in which God describes the church. It's God's building, it is um, the Christ's body, and it is the bride of Christ. The building, the body, and the bride. Let's first of all talk about the building. Who builds a church? Who builds a church? Well, If you're like most Christians, you think, well, we do, don't we? I mean, we construct and build the church. We decide what it is and what it's going to be. But that's not the case. If the church was by us, if the church was for us, and if the church was from us, what worth would our church be? I think you would recognize of little worth, maybe of no worth. Solomon, uh, you'll remember the king who built the temple, as he was building the temple, you'll remember he describes in Psalm 127.1, he writes something about building for God. And here's what he says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And I think as Solomon understood, and as we need to rightly understand, if God is not integral in the production and building, the construction of who we are as a church, then we're doing it wrong. The scriptures are clear about who builds the church. Flip your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 through 18. Matthew 16, verse 16 through 18. This is one of the most amazing passages in the scriptures because it's Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he asks them this question as they're walking along, which is where so much of the teaching of Jesus happened. They're just walking along, and he, he says to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he allows them to the answer, and they say, uh, well, some say John the Baptist, you're, you're like John the Baptist, and some say that you're like Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You know, We've seen that you weep in public and that you mourn for the loss of people, so you're like Jeremiah the weeping prophet. But then Jesus turns to them and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, let's look at verse 16, Matthew 16, verse 16 through 18. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, which means little rock. You're rocky. And upon this rock, and the, the term in Greek is Petra, upon this foundational rock, that is the confession you just made, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Did you see who's going to build the church? Jesus said, I will build my church. Not you, Peter. You're not going to build my church. The collective of you will not build my church jesus said i will build my church if you look at this last phrase here the gates of hades will not overpower it michael heiser speaks to this issue Um, renowned biblical scholar michael heiser says um, this is not the best translation of this text it's not that the gates of hades will not prevail against the church he says the rendering of the text ought to be the gates of hades will not withstand the church In other words, it's a difference of who's doing the beating. Is the church taking the beating? He says, no, the church is delivering the beating. We are knocking down the gates of the grave and we are stealing back those who belong to our God. Jesus Christ is building the church. This is his production and we get to be part of it. What is he building it with, you might ask? Well, the answer is us. We are the materials being used to build the church. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this explicitly. Peter says this in verse 5 of chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Jesus is described as the cornerstone. The cornerstone in in the building structures in this age were the foundation stone upon which everything else, or from which everything else was measured to get its level and to be put perfectly into condition. It was the most important stone in a structure. That's who Jesus is, and we are being described as stones that are being laid on that foundation, built into a structure for Almighty God. We are a building. The church is a building. Secondly, the church is Christ's body. Whose body is this was an important question for the church throughout history. It's an age-old theological discussion. Who is the head of the church? Who's responsible for the church? Who's in charge? And so many different groups said, well, well, a pope is in charge. It's one particular bishop of a particular region. That's the guy who's in charge. Other people said a council. That's what has the charge of the church. Or maybe it's a foundational document. Or as some churches operate now. Maybe it's a preacher or leader. None of these, none of these, none of these is the correct answer. The only head of the church, the only correct answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The scriptures describe the church as a body. So you and I, we're fingernails, we're toenails, we're nostrils, we're teeth. We are part of a body, but the head of the body is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, 17 and 18. He, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the only head. If Christ Jesus is not the head of your congregation, then you are not a part of the church. We are God's building We are Christ's body in a real way as Christ is the head and we are the hands and the feet. We are engaging in his actions here and now. He lives on through us even as he is waiting to return to us. He is still very much present here through his church. We are also Christ's bride. Christ's bride. The husband and wife relationship is the closest of relationships. It is unlike anything else in the whole of the human experience. And what you need to understand about that is this, that as God forged the cosmos, it's not that, that Jesus is going, you know, I, I'm like a, a husband to uh, the bride that is the church. It's not like Jesus was putting together that comparison and reaction to the marriage relationship. Rather, think of it this way. The marriage relationship was constructed. The God of this universe forged the marriage relationship so that we would understand who Jesus is in relation to his church. It is a relationship brought about so that we could understand who Christ is with his church. If you've ever wondered how much you as the church, how much we as the church mean to God, visualize the love and the passion of the bridegroom. Visualize the guarded jealousy that a husband has for his bride and see and understand that that's the way Jesus feels about us as his church. The next time you're tempted to criticize Christ's church, maybe you ought to consider that as well. Husbands, if you're listening right now, I want you to think about how you feel when somebody insults your bride. When somebody harms your bride or threatens your bride, do you take it lightly? Or do you come at them aggressively? Consider that when you're prone to criticize the church of Jesus Christ. He might not care very much for your criticisms. Consider the bridegroom. To understand the bride metaphor, you need to understand what transpired in a marriage relationship in the Jewish context. Here's here's when a Jewish marriage ceremony was able to take place the bridegroom would himself begin constructing a room and space for his bride as part of his household. He began to construct a room, a place for his bride to live. And that place would be inspected by the father. And as the father looked at that place and got to the point where he said, it's ready, when it was ready, that's when the wedding took place. The groom would come and he would take his bride and bring her back into his home. Now, visualize this as the comparison. What a beautiful comparison to what we're told about Jesus Christ's relationship with we, the church, in the scriptures. Look at John chapter 14. John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus is saying this to the church as he's getting ready to depart Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you because I'm going there to prepare a place for you just like the bridegroom prepares the place for his bride. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you back to myself so that where I am, there you will be also. Do you see the parallel? Jesus is preparing a place for us even now. And when he is ready and the Father deems that all things are ready, he is coming back for us and we will be part of His eternal household, His eternal kingdom. Well, what's the role of the bride? If He's the bridegroom and He's readying a place for us, what is our role as the church? The goal, the number one goal of the bride is to be faithful. To be faithful to the groom and to get herself ready for her husband. When He comes to pick her up for the wedding, when He comes to bring her back into the household, He wants to find her faithful, And ready, and that is our role as the church. What does that look like? Revelation chapter 19, 6 through 8, describes the wedding feast of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. This is John speaking of his revelation. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has prepared herself. It was given to her, that is, the opportunity was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We are getting ready by our actions and activities right now. We are preparing ourselves for the coming of the groom, Jesus Christ. Here's in conclusion what we want to take away from week one as we've just generally begun discussing the church. Number one, know what the church isn't. Know what the church isn't. The church isn't a physical building. The church is not a social club. The church is not a spectator sport. We're all meant to participate. Secondly, know what the church is. It is the ecclesia, it is the called out ones, the gathering of God's called out people. This is both a reference to the local church, what we do here, and a reference to the church universal, and let your mind dwell on that gathering. Lastly, know that the church is God's project. God is building the church, and we get to be part of that structure. We are his building. And we are His body here and now doing His actions. And we are His bride awaiting the coming of our bridegroom. What what beautiful illustrations of who we are as the church. Friends, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Master, we praise You that in Your divine wisdom that You did not leave us individually here to try to pursue Your will, but that You And your great insight and understanding, knowing who we are better than even we do, constructed the idea of the church, that we would become families, pockets of believers that are part of one great family, one universal church, that we might all be sharpened and changed and trained and readied for the coming of Jesus our Lord. Master, just now we want to engage in righteous actions as a body of believers here, as individuals, that we might prepare ourselves for the coming of your Son. Father, give us a vision of who we are as the church. Let it be a lens through which we see everything in our experience, through which we measure the whole of our existence. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us, even as the bridegroom loves the bride. It's in your most precious name that we pray, Father. Amen.